Now there's a final reason that I think Jesus says love your enemies. It's this. That love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly to that person. Just keep loving them. And they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with guilt feelings. Sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. I wish I had come up with that on my own. Those are the words of Martin Luther King Jr. Three days ago, April 4th, marked the 51st anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the man who said those words. And the thing that I don't know if, if, if we're, we, we cognitively think of a lot, but I marvel at this sometimes. He was only 39 years old. 39. He was a young man. And like I said, I marvel at the, at the wisdom he exhibited at such a young age. And I say that having lived through my 30s, halfway through my 40s, I, I, I go, man, <laughs> sometimes I feel really inadequate when I'm compared, I compare myself to the, the, just the, the wisdom of a guy like that. He, he possessed an uncommon measure of wisdom for a man his age, and I would say indeed an uncommon measure of grace. That's not true of most young men, right? Most young men are prone to rash behavior, prone to anger, prone to wanting to fight. And I think if we were to look at the civil rights era of Dr. King and where he lived and where he served in the 1960s, that's all the proof we need. What an age of just hatred and vitriol and violence. And so to see someone who, in the midst of, of all of that, was able to engage all of it with nonviolent resistance and kindness and charity, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. And I think that's why Martin Luther King Jr.'s life stands out. He stands out because his approach was so uncommon. So I think about that as I'm thinking about what Paul says here to Timothy in this section of the letter. Timothy was also a young man in his 30s when the much older Apostle Paul penned this letter to him. And Paul was very aware of the, the, the rash tendencies of young men. And in this passage today, he addresses this concern by exhorting this young man, Timothy, to take the high ground of grace. And I think this is a really needed message for all of us, especially those of us who have a tendency to let our youthful passions take over and get the best of us. So before we kind of round into what he says here, let's, let's recap for just a minute or two what Paul has been saying to Timothy through this letter up to this point. Remember, this was, this was Paul's last 
letter. Paul is sitting in a Roman prison. He's awaiting his execution. He's, he's going to be executed because of his refusal to stop preaching the gospel. And so he writes this letter to his young protege, Timothy, whom Paul had left in the city of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus to pastor that young and struggling church that Paul had planted just a few years earlier. And in chapter 1, the, the beginning of this letter, Paul reminds Timothy, look, God has called you for this. God has prepared you for this. There's a task at hand, and you're the man that God has prepared to do it. And this was not going to be an easy task because the church was in danger of abandoning the Gospel as they had already been abandoning Paul. And so Paul exhorts Timothy here not to be ashamed of his relationship with Paul, but more importantly, not to be ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he, and he warns him that if you're not ashamed of the Gospel, if you're willing to stand for Christ in the midst of this opposition, you're going to suffer for it, but you got to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. God has placed you here, Timothy, to shepherd this congregation and point them back to Jesus. And that's what he says in chapter 2. He encourages Timothy not just to be strengthened in the grace of Christ, but to pass along that pure message of the Gospel to faithful men and women who would be able to pass it along to others as well. In other words, equip the church. Continue to raise up others in the body who know the message of the Gospel so that the Word of God will continue to flourish here. And that's going to be hard work and it's going to require discipline. And he uses analogies. You're going to need the discipline of a farmer. You're going to need the discipline of a soldier. You're going to need the discipline of an athlete to do this. But stick to that task, even if it costs you, because the Word of God will not be bound. God will see to that. So keep cutting a straight path to Jesus. Keep pointing people directly to Him. Don't be like the false teachers. Now it's one thing to say, don't be like those other guys, right? Don't be like them. Okay. It's another thing though to say, oh, and you're going to have to deal with them. Right? And for Timothy who based on all we can sort of gather from these letters that have been written to him and about him in some way, this was not an area of strength for Timothy. He was a bit of a timid person. He was a bit of a non-confrontational kind of guy. And so Paul says not only don't be like those who are disrupting that pure message of Jesus, but you're going to have to deal with them. You're going to have to confront that in the church. And that's where we are today. This is where Paul turns in this section of chapter 2. So here's the question for us as we look at it together. When dealing with false teachers, when dealing with opponents of the faith, how do you do it? How do you do it? How can Timothy be an effective pastor? And by extension, then, how can he teach his people to be effective Christians in the midst of opposition? How can they be useful to the Master who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look again at the text to hear what Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says here to Timothy about that. Look again at chapter 2, 
verse 20. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So let's stop there and consider kind of the first thing that Paul is getting across here to Timothy. Again, the question is, if you're going to have to stand up and deal with opposition, deal with those who are trying to to undo the faith in the church, to mess up the message of the gospel, how are you going to do it? And the first one is this. You're going to do it in holiness by being useful to the Master. Paul gives this helpful analogy here. He's talking about uh, uh, kind of a think of like a, a mansion, if you will, or kind of a rich person's house. He says a great house, and you know I don't know if if you're into like Downton Abbey or shows like that. You can think about. I'm sure none of you live in great houses where you have like servants and things like that. But if you can if you can imagine that, uh, you, you get the picture that yeah, there's this there's sort of like two two categories of people who live in a great house like that. You've got the you've got the family. You've got the master of the house, and then you've got the, the staff, you've got the servants. And if you've watched Downton Abbey, I've watched it a couple of times, you, you know that when it comes to, let's say, dinner time, the family is gathered in the beautiful, ornate dining room, and they've got the fine china, and they've got the silver, you know, vessels that are, that are all over the table, and the candlesticks and all that. And then you, you, you get scenes where you cut down to the staff who are eating in the kitchen on a wooden table, Kind of a naughty looking wooden table with just kind of regular everyday, you know, silverware and plates and, and, and wood things rather than gold things, right? There's a difference. And so Paul is saying, look, the, the, the point of that is there's a, there's a standard by which the master of the house, by which those who have that distinction are, 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 are living there. It's not suitable for them to use the regular everyday good. You don't put paper plates in front of the king. The, the master of the house is worthy of the finest instruments of the house. That's what they're for. Now, there's a lot of ways we can kind of read into this as Paul is talking about what's going on in the church of Ephesus. We could say that, and many commentators do, that the great house represents the household of God and the master, of course, represents God Himself. And, and then you've got these, these vessels that are honorable and vessels that are dishonorable. The honorable vessels being those who are cutting a straight path to Jesus and, and holding fast to the Gospel. And the dishonorable being, of course, those who are the false teachers in the church. Those who are disrupting the faith of some. And I think there's certainly... that Certainly Paul must be having illusions like that in his mind as he's writing this. But I, I wonder if, if we maybe miss the forest for the trees if we spend too much time trying to figure out who's who and just understand the basic principle of the analogy. God is worthy of the finest vessels. He's the master. And so he's simply saying to Timothy, be worthy of usefulness to the king. And how are you going to do that? By cleansing yourself of the dishonorable. It's, it's a matter of holiness, Right? Are you pursuing a life of holiness or are you pursuing a life of dishonor? It has much to do with the way that we're living the Christian life. 
Now, if we understand the gospel rightly, we, we, we must ask the question immediately, are we capable of cleansing ourselves of that which is dishonorable? Well, no, in fact, the gospel exists because we're incapable of cleansing ourselves from that which is dishonorable, right? So this is not a, a call to moralism. This is not a call for, for Timothy to, to stir up and pull up his bootstraps and, and just be a better person. I think ultimately it's a call to remember Christ and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. To cleanse yourself of that which is dishonorable is to be reminded and to walk in the reality of what Jesus has already done for His people. Be holy because He has made you holy. Now walk in the newness of life that He's given to you. So that's the sort of the foundation here. Before Paul's going to get into the nitty-gritty of what does it look like to actually confront and, and deal with the problems that are existing in the church, he wants us to begin with this simple foundation. You can't be useful to God unless you're a cleansed instrument of His. Walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. Walk in the holiness that Christ has purchased for you. That He has transferred to you. So seems like a really simple but really important principle, right? You're not going to do this in your own strength, Timothy. You, you, you are, apart from Christ, a dishonorable vessel. We all are. But remember what Christ has made you and walk in that. In holiness, you'll be able then to do the things that come next. And the things that come next start in verse 22. So, here's how you walk in that holiness. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So the second thing he's calling Timothy to is then godliness. And the way that he, he presents this, this contrast, fleeing youthful passions and instead pursuing after righteousness, faith, love, peace, I think he's saying, ultimately, Timothy, be a lover, not a fighter. That's what it looks like to live a godly life. Be a lover, not a fighter. You say, well, Bill, why do you say that? Because fleeing youthful passions is an important phrase here. And though it's often used to, to sort of uh, denote sexual purity in the New Testament, I don't think in this case that's what Paul has in mind, although certainly that would be included. But I think what he has more in mind here is, again, this tendency of young men to be retaliatory, to be rash and prone to fight. In other words, guided more by their in-the-moment emotional responses than by big-picture wisdom. And I say that because of, again, the context of what's going on. You've got these false teachers in the church who are disrupting the faith of some, and you're going to have to deal with that. So the temptation for Timothy would be then, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to put these guys down. And yet Paul's saying, in the way you do that, flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. Now, I want to tell you a story about my week because this, this for me was, was, was how this passage came to light for me this week. Um, and by the way, that's my prayer every week is that God would let the text work on me so that I can stand up here and, 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 and preach it with some sense of integrity, some sense of experience. God, form me so that as I'm teaching the body here, I can 
be a part of how you would use me as an instrument in your hands to form them. Um, sometimes that prayer is, 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 is answered in very specific ways, and sometimes I don't like the way that God does that. And that happened to me this week. So let me tell you what, was, what my week looked like. It's Tuesday. And I decided, as I'm sitting in my study in my home all day Tuesday, and I'm kind of thinking about, okay, I know it's a, it's a mayoral election day today. Um, but I was kind of like, this is just personal. I, I wasn't super excited about voting for mayor. Right? Um, to me, the candidates, I didn't see a ton of difference. I was kind of like, what's, what's the point? So I was kind of wrestling with that all day. There was a big part of me that was like, maybe I won't bother. And, and then another part of me was like, no, do your civic duty, you know, participate in the system. God has given you that right, that freedom, exercise it. So anyway, so I finally decide kind of mid, mid afternoon, I'm going to walk over to Pierce Elementary School and I'm going to, I'm going to vote. So I go in there and I vote. But again, I'm not super excited about the vote. I just kind of vote and I walk out and I'm just kind of thinking, well, wow, okay, I did my civic duty, right? <laughs> and as I'm, as I'm walking back up here, I, I have to cross the crosswalk here at Bryn Mawr and Glenwood. And I had, there was a car that was turning right, who was at the, at the, at the other side of the intersection. So, uh, he started to go. So I'm like, okay, it's my turn. I start to walk. And, and out of the peripheral of my eye, I'm, I all of a sudden I see the car that was behind him coming at me through the intersection, like full speed, like I wasn't even there. And so as I see this car coming right at me, I turned and I put my hands out and I said, what are you doing? And the driver of the car, and by the way, I think I did that just like that. I wasn't like overreacting. I think I, I was just like, what are you doing? Right? And the driver of the car goes, at me. I'm like, what? So I'm a little upset. And I get out of the crosswalk and I start to walk and not 10 feet down the sidewalk do I run into two men who are walking side by side with a baby stroller and a dog and they're going so slow and they know I'm behind them. I can see them going like this. But they won't let me pass. And I'm, we're talking slow. So now I'm like, okay, that's strike three for my heart right now. And I, and I, and I literally, I, I, I had this just overwhelming sense. Like, I hate this neighborhood. <laughs> and as I, as that thought came into my head, there was this strong kind of conviction. Like, God, you brought me to this neighborhood to love this neighborhood. I know I need to love this neighborhood. I do. I think I love this neighborhood. Right now, I do not love this neighborhood. I don't love these people. I don't love this city. Like, I was just angry. And a little bit later in the day, I had that conversation with a younger brother in Christ. I told him what had just happened. And his first reaction was, Man, I would have punched the hood of that guy's car. And I thought, man, that thought crossed my mind. But I didn't do that. 
I didn't do that. Because I knew that in holiness, I was called to something better than that. And yet at the same time, I was wrestling back and forth with God. God, why do I have to be here? That's, I think, what Paul has in mind here when he's saying flee youthful passions. There's that tendency in us, right? To just want to react against opposition. That's not even, that's not even like directly spiritual opposition. We're talking about just something that happens in life, right? But that, that's my, that can be my tendency. I, I, that is my tendency. That's your tendency, I'm sure. Especially those of you who are younger to just want to fight. Now, the, the word translated here as flee is the same word from which the English word fugitive is derived. And so this was a helpful image for me this week as I'm thinking about Paul's admonition here to Timothy. Flee those youthful passions. Fugitive. I'm thinking run away from that kind of anger and, and, and fight mentality like Harrison Ford runs from Tommy Lee Jones. If you don't get that reference... You need to expand your horizons and see some good movies. So, so as God was working on, and I knew in the in the midst in the midst of that, like this is God's way of teaching me this principle. I knew it, and so I began to say, "Okay, Paul, as you're writing this to Timothy, flee youthful passions." I recognize he's saying, "Run from this, but run towards this," or "Run from this by running towards." This. What is it that we're called to run towards? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So, how can I apply that to my experience on Tuesday? Run towards righteousness. The simple definition there is is doing the right thing. I want to do the wrong thing. I want to fly off the handle. I want to I want to punch the guy's hood, right? Do the right thing. What would Jesus do without overplaying a really bad cliche? What would Jesus do in a situation like that? What does it mean when Jesus says, love your enemy? What does it mean when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself? What does it mean when Jesus calls us to turn the other cheek? Those aren't suggestions. It's a matter of righteousness. Do, are you doing the right thing? Run towards what's right. Pursue righteousness. Pursue what God's Word tells us about what it means to live and be at peace with all men as much as you're able to. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And he says run towards faith. Now There, there are some who would say that that could be translated as faithfulness, which is sort of taking that righteousness and just sort of adding another layer to it. Be faithful in your pursuit of what is right. But I'm not sure that that's entirely what Paul has in mind here because he doesn't say faithfulness. He says faith. And I think this ties into righteousness in this way. Again, thinking back to what it means that we can't cleanse ourselves We have to depend wholly on Christ's work in us to produce that kind of holiness in us. 
The faith that I'm to pursue is the faith that reminds me that my righteousness is Christ's righteousness applied to me. It's a matter of faith to believe that, right? To believe the gospel. I'm going to do the right thing because I know that my righteousness is not dependent on what this guy in the car thinks about me. And in the moment, I cared about that. Why would you, why'd you do that to me? Like that, that, that hurt me, right? I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. I didn't do anything wrong. You did something wrong. Why would you have a negative view of me? I cared about that. Why did I care about that? I only care about that to the extent that I think that my right standing is dependent on what somebody else thinks about me. Rather than my right standing is dependent upon what the Father thinks of me because of the covering that I have in Christ. He sees Christ in me. My righteousness is Christ. My faith reminds me that my righteousness is Christ. I think Paul's saying to Timothy, pursue the faith that reminds you where your righteousness is found. You don't have to go after these guys and care what they think of you. They're not gonna, they're not gonna like it. I think that quote from Martin Luther King Jr. earlier in the message where I started, he's right. They're not gonna like it. They're gonna react badly. Pursue faith. Who are you in Christ? And then pursue love. Not of the emotions, of the will. A conscious focus on the well-being of the one loved as opposed to self-gratification and self-fulfillment. That's what it means to love your enemy. That's what it means to love your neighbor. Your neighbor and your enemy are going to do things that will hurt you. Your emotions are going to tell you that's not worthy of love. But your will in Christ will tell you that's exactly why love is needed. And that reminds me again of my own faith, my own righteousness in Christ. God loves me even while I'm yet a sinner. That's love. This is love, John says. That He loved us first. So we're to pursue love. Believe me, I have and you have offended God far more than anyone has ever offended you. And yet God in His grace has loved us. Pursue that kind of love. And then, of course, peace. All of these tie together. They're not compartmentalized. We'll talk about being at peace with all in just a moment because I think it comes out a little bit uh, richer in the text here. But it, it has to begin again with my gospel lenses that I'm that I'm that I'm I'm reminded that my peace is secured in Christ's reconciling me to God. That's peace. And in my being reconciled to God and at peace with God, now I am able to be at peace with others. Right? Not being vindicated in my own power. Punch the hood. <laughs> vindicated rather, by Christ's vindication and the peace that He has purchased between God and myself and now myself and others. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. 
run away from the youthful passions that will make you want to do the things you really want to do. Now, I just made all of that um, illustrated by something that happened to me outside of the church. Paul's talking about things that are happening inside the church. So let's bring it back to the church and let's bring it back to Timothy's situation and let's be reminded of what he's up against and what Paul is encouraging him to do. Verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So here's the third principle. Gentleness. Be a patient peacemaker. Now, I'm not going to spend time talking about the quarreling because we did that last week. And if you weren't here, you can, you can listen to that more fully online. But, but that was the issue, right? You've got these false teachers who are, who are squabbling about words. They're, they're, they're taking Scripture out of context. They're creating doctrines that are in error. And they're, they're creating this environment where people want to fight over word studies. And it's, again, dis- disrupting the faith. It's, it's creating crooked paths that aren't leading people to Christ, but rather leading them into all these secondary issues that ultimately aren't important. And in this case, are leading actually towards error, saying the resurrection had already happened. So again, Paul's saying, look, when, when you, you've got to deal with that. That's a problem. You've got to step in and you've got to deal with that. So how are you going to do that? Well, it's, it's surprising because it's, it's not like we would want to. What Paul is, is saying here is what, what Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. We're to flee these youthful passions. We're to flee these things that bring about anger in us. You're not going to do that. You're not going to accomplish that if you step in there with harsh words. And again, that's the temptation, right? Timothy could easily have said, I'm the pastor here. I'm the one that Paul set in charge. You're teaching wrong things, it's my job to ensure that you don't. And, and again, it was his job to ensure that that wasn't happening. It was, that's the job of elders. And the first letter written to Timothy, that was one of the qualifications of an elder, that he'd be able to, to not only teach sound doctrine, but actually stand up against those who don't. So he could have easily just kind of relied on his authority there and just quashed it. And yet Paul says, no, be gentle, be patient. The first thing that came to my mind was, isn't this the opposite of what we see in the Twitter generation? Isn't this the absolute opposite of what we're we're all told is the appropriate way to respond to opposition? We are constantly inundated with one-upmanship. We're constantly inundated with this idea that if someone speaks something against you, the, the best and only way to retaliate is to say something back against them that hits harder. Paul says that is the opposite of Christ-likeness. 
Now, the, the, the youthful passion in me might say, Paul, that sounds like pacifism. I mean, you're asking Timothy to, to, uh, to step in and to do something here. This sounds like being a pacifist. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, that sounds like pacifism. And I don't think that's what it means. You know, it's not like George McFly. I get that image in my mind. Again, good movie reference for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Right? You know, where, where the bullies, where Biff and the, and the bullies are, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're saying things and they're doing things to pick on George. And George, George is just kind of like, okay, fellas, all right, all right, all right. And not doing anything about that. And I think sometimes we, we will avoid the teachings of Christ in this regard because we think, I don't want to be George McFly. That's not what Paul is calling Timothy to. He's not saying, don't do anything. He's saying, no, I want you to do something. This is not pacifism. This is being active. This is being proactive. It's just a different way of doing it. You don't fight fire with fire here. You fight it actively with kindness with gentleness, with patience? What would it look like to correct our opponents with gentleness? Hopefully, I think this, hopefully it ought to look like the way I would correct my children whom I love. And I hope you can, you can understand the difference there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be tempted to, to respond to a, a negative tweet with somebody I don't know I don't have to face them eye to eye. I can just throw a lob on, on, on the internet and just I'd be tempted to just kind of want to smack at them hard. But, but if, if it's my children whom I love, and, and again, they're, they're, maybe they're doing something wrong. They need to be corrected. My whole goal in correcting them isn't to make them feel as small as possible. As a good father, my goal in correcting them is to help them to grow and flourish. So I'm going to be patient with them. I'm going to be gentle with them. I'm going to be kind to them because I'm motivated not just by correcting them, but by correcting them in love. I'm motivated by love. And this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Now he's saying, have nothing to do with them in the sense that I think he's saying, don't, don't enter into that nonsense. Right? And at the end of the day, if, if they're unrepentant in what they're doing, then there's plenty of principles here in the New Testament, namely Matthew 18 for church discipline. You don't have to tolerate that in the church, but in the way that you approach that, even in the discipline, what's the point of discipline in Matthew 18? Is it to kick somebody out? No, it's restoration. So deal with it, Timothy but deal with it in gentleness. Be a patient peacemaker. It's about restoration. And that's where he, that's where he, he, he lands the plane here in this part of the text. He says it's, it's redemptive. It's redemptive. It's be gospel-minded. Look at, again at verses 25, the end of 25 and verse 26. He says, as we correct our opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. He's reminding Timothy here that our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against darkness, 
It's against the enemy, Satan himself. That's, that's the battle. And these people, that guy in the car, I, I don't know him, so I, I don't, maybe, maybe the guy's a brother in Christ and he just had a bad moment. I don't know. But from all I can tell, that guy was exhibiting really lousy behavior, right? And my first thought ought not be, that guy's a jerk. My first thought ought to be, that guy's captive to darkness. That, that guy's lack of kindness, that guy's lack of compassion, that guy's lack of conviction, he was clearly in the wrong, right? Ought to, ought to first and foremost inform me that that guy needs Christ. Not my foot in his fender. Right? It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Romans 2.4 It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. You Christians did not come to Christ in repentance because God thumped you. Even though maybe some of the circumstances around your coming to Christ felt a little bit like a thumping, maybe they did. But that wasn't where God stops, right? You came to Christ because God in His mercy showed kindness to you. He opened your eyes to your sin. He opened your eyes to the Gospel. He initiated contact with you and regenerated you by the Holy Spirit. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And so when it comes again to how, how are we dealing with problems? How are we dealing with problem people? It starts by seeing that we ourselves have been redeemed. We have received God's grace. God has been kind to us. And therefore, in dealing with those who oppose us and who ultimately oppose the Gospel, it's not to be viewed as a revenge mission, but a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission that He may bring them to their senses, escaping from the snare of the devil after having been captured by Him to do His will. I want to just show you that the full counsel of Scripture is in complete agreement with that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-6. to Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to partner or to tamper with God's Word. So we're, we're refusing to, again, get into quarrels and, and, and to, to act in unbecoming ways, just like he's talking about here in 2 Timothy. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our Gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, that's the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Ephesians 2, if you were, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Again, there's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. The things that we're supposed to flee, right? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's about having compassion. We engage those who are opposed to the Gospel with the grace of the Gospel. Remembering that we ourselves, apart from God's kind mercy, stood opposed to the Gospel as well. Stood opposed to Christ as well. And as we have received that grace by the mercy and kindness of God, we should desire to extend that grace to others and hope that they too will come to the knowledge of the mercy and the kindness of God. So that's, that's, that's the question for Timothy. That's the question for us as God's people. Will we join in as destructive, quarrelsome, rash, and complicit members of the Twitter generation? Or will we be people of the Gospel? Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Who said that? Martin Luther King Jr. But here's the thing. That's not an original idea. It came from Jesus, who is the light of the world, and He calls us to be lights in the world. Jesus, who is love and calls us to love our enemies that they too might see the light of the Gospel. Jesus is both our example and our power to flee youthful passions and to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace and kindness and gentleness and patience. All these things that Paul brings up here which ought to strike you as, boy, those sound like the fruits of the Spirit. They are. They are. That's the Spirit of Jesus that indwells us. It's all about making Him known. And I said earlier, Martin Luther King stands out because he had such an uncommon approach. Praise God for that. But, but, but Jesus stands alone because He had the perfect, uncommon approach and grace And He's given it to us to share. So Father, we ask You to help us in our weakness to flee from youthful passions. Lord, remind us that there's going to be different ways in which we're going to have to figure out how to do this in our lives. This week, we're going to be challenged by the world around us, people around us, cars around us, co-workers around us who are going to do things and say things that are going to hurt and offend 
And we're also going to be challenged within the church. We, we hurt each other. We offend each other. And, 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 and then in the church, we can proclaim things that undo the Gospel. So Lord, as we encounter those realities and those challenges, we ask for Your grace, God, to be lovers rather than fighters, to be patient peacemakers, to be redemptive in our approach, knowing again that we are redeemed in Christ. Help us to reflect Jesus. And thank You for His grace. Apart from His grace, woe is me. You are good. You are good. And we belong to You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.